Emergency Medical Minute presents Mental Health Monthly. Substance-induced psychosis, the agitated geriatric patient, manic episodes, paramedics, nurses, mid-level providers, and physicians in the ED all regularly have to manage patients with psychiatric conditions, often with limited training and resources. In this series, psychiatric experts keep it real, raw, and relevant about what you need to know to successfully care for these patients in an emergency setting. Hello, and welcome to Emergency Medical Minute Mental Health Monthly. This is Travis Barlock, and I'm again accompanied by my friend and colleague, Dr. Andrew White. Dr. White, thank you for joining me. Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Travis. Good to be here. So last time we met, we talked about psychosis and the inpatient and the ED management of psychosis. Today, we're going to be talking about mania. Oh, I love it. It's like one of the sexy things in, in mental health. <laughs> so with that, I think we can just maybe get right into it and talk a little bit about just what it is exactly and what we do for it when we see it in the ER and then maybe what things look like on the inpatient side. Yeah, sounds good. So, you know, mania is one of those things that if folks listen to the last episode and are wondering about how to approach a patient that, that could be seen as difficult, I would say falls under the umbrella of a, a potentially difficult patient. It's, in short, a mental health emergency. So mania traditionally is seen as a distinct mood episode where individuals have elevated and expansive mood in addition to extremely intense and almost palpable amounts of energy, enthusiasm, and at times irritability. So, you know, for anyone who's worked in an emergency setting, you've probably seen mania. And if you have, you likely remember it based on the severity of of how it presents. And really excited to talk about it today. I think the best place to start when we talk about mania to give folks an understanding of what it might look like could be with some of the pathognomonic symptoms or the things that we see across the board in an individual who's suffering a manic episode. And those things can be characterized a number of different ways. I use the good old acronym from med school of DIGFAST. D is for distractibility, I for impulsivity and high-risk behaviors, G for grandiosity, F for flight of ideas, A for agitation and increased activity, S is for sleep decrease, and T is for talkativeness. And each of those letters represents one of the core symptoms that the DSM-5 says should be applied to an individual who's showing an elevated mood and increased energy. So you might not be able to say, hey, this person is bipolar or manic depressive right off the bat. But if you see an individual who has in their presentation extreme amounts of distractibility, which is what the D stands for in DigFast, you might get suspicious. And so when we talk about distractibility, it could be an individual who even within the conversation of, you know, introductions in the first 30 seconds is unable to carry on a linear goal-directed conversation because they're getting distracted by your tie or what kind of shoes you have on or something that's in the room and their mind sort of gets hijacked by that interesting thing and takes them off on a, a whole train of thought. And when we talk about some of the other aspects, just going through the acronym, the I for impulsivity is something that may be the reason that the person's coming into the emergency room in the first place. So when an individual's in a manic episode, their overall functioning is rather impaired when we think of executive functioning, you know, being able to pause before you act, having an ability to control your desires. And um, as a result, folks who are manic 
are usually prone to all sorts of high-risk behaviors, whether it's lots of spending, engaging in sexual activity that they normally wouldn't engage in, having, you know, drag races down the street, even though they're like a 60-year-old woman, or things as remarkable as running down the hallway naked into the emergency room. You can kind of see it all. Accompanied with some of these these symptoms is, is a grandiosity, you know, this elevated mood and this elevated sense of self where individuals really can be anywhere from just feeling so great about themselves on one end of the spectrum or going even further to delusions of grandeur where you have ideas that you know, people often come in thinking, depending on the individual, hyper-religious ideas like they're the next coming of Christ or on the other end of the spectrum that they're the, the devil and that are responsible for all the bad in the world. But but effectively, the, the idea behind the grandiosity and, and mania is, is that it is very notable and it is, again, one of the, the hallmarks of, of the illness. You kind of laid out just almost like a spectrum for this grandiosity from kind of on one end just being overly confident to the more extreme example of having a delusion of grandeur. That then seems to kind of remind me of our conversation regarding psychosis and delusions. And so I guess if this kind of presentation is manifesting in in our encounter, patient who's you know, thinking that they're ordained or something, that they have these grandiose, you know, delusions. Um, do you find it, there's any kind of quality to it that's different that makes you think that this is more of a manic picture rather than a psychotic picture? Is it just the overall clinical picture or is it that the delusions that are seen with psychosis are of a different nature than of this, like delusions of grandeur? Is it more specifically just of grandeur exactly? No, I think that's a, a great distinction there. You know, ultimately, I think the best way to maybe draw a line between them would, would be to, to first start off saying that, that mania, if we look at it similarly on the spectrum from, you know, kind of euthymia or baseline mood, and then increased elevation in mood that then leads to a manic episode, one of the downstream endpoints of an untreated manic episode is that individuals can become psychotic. And so there's probably a difficulty in distinguishing based on the content of the psychosis, like is this psychosis of a you know, schizophrenia origin, or is this something more related to mood without some of these finer points around the history of what this person's been going through pre-psychosis. So if you're dealing with like Joe Schmo, who's coming in and like you said, thinks he's got powers from God to heal everybody, gonna be really tough to say, well, is this mania with psychosis? Is this psychosis from schizophrenia? That seems like a, almost like a trivial difference, but it's probably not because one seems like a, you know, intrinsic fundamental psychotic disorder as another one is a mood disorder. And so I would imagine then your treatment modalities would be totally different. Treatments differ, prognosis differs, but as we'll talk about in a little bit in, in terms of how we might approach it practically, the acute treatments might not differ too much. Okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, so I, I mean, it, it gets to the point where in these manic episodes, folks can be psychotic. The rest of the acronym kind of runs through other aspects that are lived experience of the person. So the F in DIGFAST is for flight of ideas, usually expressed as this racing thoughts. Like my thoughts are just racing and racing and racing. A little nonspecific, right? If you talk to anyone with anxiety or depression, it isn't necessarily true just to mania. But I think one of the aspects that is representative later on in this acronym towards the T is a pronounced talkativeness 
in addition to these racing thoughts. So an individual with mania is going to be having these racing thoughts, almost tangential in nature, not so much, you know, as we're talking here, going from point A to B to C, they'll just start talking about the weather and then, oh, I was driving my car here and my car's a Mitsubishi and Mitsubishis are made here. And you go on and on down this almost illogical route. And the talkativeness nature is, I think the best way to describe it is it's uninterruptible. Like if you're working with someone who's manic, good luck getting a word in. Sometimes the talkativeness will span into some of the more intriguing things in psychiatry that we have, which include word salad or clanging. You know, word salad is basically just words thrown together. Clanging is where words are kind of almost spoken in a like rhymy, rappy sort of way, where the actual tone and the sound of the word connects with the next one in a way that's kind of playful. And at times there's puns mixed in. And if you're working with a pleasantly manic person, it can be like a pleasurable experience to have a conversation with them. But one of the aspects of mania, uh, as you kind of alluded to with the mood nature of it, is that there is sometimes elevated grandiose mood and there can be some pretty irritable and if not depressing mood in a, in a mixed state mania where individuals are suffering both from these elevated moods and some of the symptoms we're talking about as well as aspects of depression. That's very helpful. So we've gone through the bulk of the mnemonic. We've done distractibility, impulsivity, grandiosity, that's dig, and then fast. We kind of jumped from F to T with the flight of ideas and then the talkativeness. And then I guess, so what's the A and the S in between there? Yeah, so the A and the S are, are things that you'd probably gather from collateral inform informants or potentially from the patient. But the A is an increase in psychomotor activity agitation, pacing around. And, you know, from a, um, a history standpoint, you, you'll kind of see that folks brewing up to an emergency presentation have been starting all sorts of projects, renovating housework, and doing so in a, in a pretty unsuccessful manner, almost like starting five or six projects that they have no previous knowledge of doing. Um, but because of that grandiosity, that elevated mood, that they can do it. Like, they'll fix the roof. They'll put up a fence in the backyard. Do the startup. Yeah. And it's going to make billions and they'll quit their job because this is it. I mean, it really sounds super dangerous and risky if you have a patient who is just unstoppably confident and is actually like risking their life savings, other people's, you know, assets. Like you can really see how it really would be tremendously, you know, disruptive to someone's life. Unlike many things that folks will present to care for, for a while, this feels great, right? There's, there's, you know, something nice about feeling on top of the world. There's, there's something reinforcing about social interactions that sort of energize you. And I think that carries folks through a lot of these activities that begin to occupy their time. Exacerbating this is, is that last part of the acronym, the S, which kind of stands for sleep changes. You know, it, it in a nutshell describes, I think one of the aspects of this increased energy is, is it's not just, well, this person has all this energy and you know, they go to bed and they wake up the next day, they've got tons of energy. Typical manic episode almost starts with some noticeable insomnia, sleep issues, not getting to bed as easily, staying up a little later, and can evolve into almost pure sleeplessness for days. And so I've worked with numbers of people who have gone through three, four, five days without sleep. And I think the big crux of this, if, if you're kind of working through, you know, is this 
insomnia related to mania, is this insomnia related to something else, is how the person feels the next day. Because in a manic episode, you feel fantastic, right? People say they wake up and they got 30 minutes of sleep and they are just rolling. They feel great and they're ready to carry on with all these random things that, that their brain is kind of showing them is, is possible with the world. Whereas, you know, insomnia, due to the majority of other causes that we know of, are you know, pretty unbearable for few, if not many days. You know, people are tired and exhausted and worn out. So it might even be just like a, a feature that is unique to, to mania itself is just the uh, almost like how it doesn't impair them uh, in terms of how they feel afterward. They're so elated in this state that being sleep deprived, just you still feel great. Yeah. I mean, it's it does have its limits. One of the aspects that, that aren't really included in the new diagnostic criteria, but, but is notable when you're interviewing folks is, is you know, they're, they're not sleeping. And they're they're, you know, working on on random stuff for twenty twenty something hours a day. They're usually not eating, so you can have individuals who come into the ER and they're ketotic just from not eating for the last three four days. Because why why eat when you're gonna save the world? Sure. Um, and so it it does tend to burn out one way or the other. Kind of as you mentioned, um, working into the the reality of how these folks might present to us. I, I think usually there's there's an aspect of sort of this terminal event that leads to folks seeking care you know selling their house and moving the family out to the middle of nowhere and then a spouse or significant other sort of bringing that to attention like this is off like we need to do something individuals will often run into issues with the law whether it's um, committing a crime or you know some folks will have paranoia and, and aspects of uh, psychosis that develops that's not necessarily in the, the grandiose realm, but more in the auditory hallucinations, negative, you need to kill yourself. And, and so we'll also see fo folks coming in and kind of the throes of suicidal ideation. Interesting. There's, again, some of that overlap with with psychosis. And you can see how there's this blurry kind of space between them. But again, important to differentiate. Is it primary psychotic disorder versus is it a primary um, mood disorder. Interesting. So, and then uh, I guess you, we've listed out all these features of mania. Now, do you know, is it any certain combination of them that would kind of put you in that category to confidently tell you this person is, I mean, it seems like there's just a kind of a gestalt and recognition overall, but do you think, I mean, I'm sure the DSM has a, you know, some cutoff yeah, and, and they're cut off. So, you know, criteria A of, of the DSM says you, know, you have to have this elevated mood. You have to have the increased energy. The mood is irritable. It kind of changes the number of symptoms that you would look for um, that, that we discussed. But if you have the elevated mood and you have the elevated energy and you have three of those symptoms that we talked about, you would be in a, a manic episode if the duration of that episode has reached seven days. There's a little asterisk next to that, though, because, you know, you or I seeing these folks tend to be folks coming into the emergency room or into the inpatient setting. And for those individuals, you know, we, we consider, you know, all those symptoms, are they present? Yes. Are they affecting someone's life? Yes. And if you get hospitalized, we kind of say, well, screw how many days it's been. This is severe enough. This is a manic episode. If someone is in an irritable mood and it has increased energy, we look for four of those symptoms opposed to three. But again, it's hard to put too much stock in an incomplete history. And, and I mentioned that because if we're, you know, if you're interviewing someone who's manic, 
And some of the data that I was looking at suggests that even having a logical conversation only happens in about like 30 to 40% of people who present manic to an emergency room. These conversations are, are very challenging. I'd actually even ask your thoughts on how, how best to conduct these interviews, because I can recall conversations with patients who are having manic episodes and getting into philosophical circles and circular reasoning. And then, again, whatever kind of pressured speech they have is totally impairing any further history gathering on my end. Um, and so I guess, do you have a recommendation of like how to go about navigating an interview with one of these patients? Because at the same time, like we still need to know, you know, what, do you take any medications? Do you have any other medical problems? Like what happened, you know? So like, how, how do you recommend we go about that? Yeah. So it's definitely more of the art than skill. I think the, the biggest aspect for any provider potentially interacting with someone who's manic or even say similarly if, if you're anywhere in the healthcare setting and you're worried that someone's in noticeable distress would be to be extremely clear short and direct in what you're asking if individuals as, as you kind of mentioned right can can do in these situations you know kind of get off on a random tangent and try to take the conversation a certain way in those moments, I, I treat that as data gathering, right? You listen, give them a couple minutes, no harm, if there's no harm. And I think that um, sort of is a perfect moment to pause and, and mention that in all of these situations, particularly with an individual who's maybe been manic now for a few days on, on weeks, um, it could very well become a safety concern. And so... If at any point in the interaction you feel as though this person is, is feeling cornered, getting even more agitated, you know, don't even worry about what they're saying. Leave the room, get back up, call security, and do so in a manner that's you know, pretty much in line with, as we talked about with folks that are undergoing psychosis, um, sort of patient-centered but also safety-centered for the entire staff that's there. I think out of individuals who are prone to potentially turn the corner towards violence and um, assaulting staff, folks in manic episodes tend to be at the top of my list to kind of watch out for. Okay. Um, you know, in practical terms and epidemiologically speaking, they're not necessarily at an increased risk of having violent outbursts, but something about the mixture of, you know, severe mental illness and locked doors and people in white coats can bring out a lot of paranoia and some of those mixed state features of, you know, potentially psychotic things, hearing voices. Um, and so if you have those points of knowledge that you need, right, you know, what happened, what brought you in, ask them directly, try to get an answer. But if you've asked four or five things and you're getting this diatribe about some manifesto that's going to solve the world's issues, yeah, again, that's that's pretty solid data that this person's brain has got flight of ideas or tangential. And then I think one of the big distinctions as you're trying to make that call between is this mood-based or is this psychosis-based is what you're going to observe in the person. A manic individual, at least based on the, the ones that I've seen up to this point in my career, is not going to sit still and have a conversation with you. It's almost counter what their entire being is, is doing in that moment. And so if the person is spewing some psychotic, um, interesting things, but chill on the bed, legs crossed, just hanging out, 
you know, could start thinking about some of the stuff we talked about in our psychosis episode, whereas an individual with mania is going to be pacing, moving around, moving their hands, moving their body, and a notable restlessness. Kind of getting back to that um, A and like psychomotor agitation. It's just kind of everything's revved up. So it might not be a patient that you you know, pull up a chair and sit down and talk with just out of your safety and out of the practicality of a conversation and try to match their posture and just understand that, you know, ultimately, as we kind of talk about the workup of this and the treatment, some of that history that we might gather is probably not as important as treating this as immediately as possible. That's very helpful. I think then that's a good segue into the initial workup in the ER, and then maybe talk about, I guess, what uh, what happens um, on the inpatient side. So you kind of already alluded to one big branch point that I'm very familiar with, and that's just the the patient who is agitated. And to me, that there's just that clear-cut line between a patient who is, you know, agitated and cooperative. And I guess when we're dealing with the agitated patient, um, it's are, are we are we dangerous, agitated, or just kind of disruptive? And for me, it's when you're agitated, dangerous to either staff or to themselves. You know, they need a head CT and we need to rule out, you know, an intracranial hemorrhage or something, then to me, it's they need probably intramuscular ketamine immediately, three mix per keg, and have airway equipment at the bedside for that. Very possibly might need to be intubated. It definitely will be on constant cardiac respiratory monitoring with nursing and probably the doc at the bedside for the entirety of that encounter. And then there is the disruptive agitated patient who my go-to medication, and we, I think we, we, we possibly spoke about this in the psychosis episode as well, is I usually go with droperidol and plus or minus adding Versed for, um, for the speed onset rather than, you know, anything else. I feel like that's what we really care about in the ER is, is you know, speed. So agitated, dangerous is one thing. Agitated, disruptive, another. Does that gel with your approach to patient in who is acutely oh, yeah. agitated? I, I think the image of like having someone there to intubate is just like so wonderful. We don't get that in our like <laughs> our side of things. But yeah, y'all can really... Um, knock some folks out if, if if it's in their best interest. But the same dichotomy plays out when you send someone to the psych emergency side. You know, how much of a legitimate concern is this person's safety right now? Um, do we need to go intramuscular? And that's about it as far as we'll go before we send folks over to, to your end on the, the emergency side. Or are they, you know, at, at least willing to discuss the idea of taking meds? Usually what we'll use in, in a more, you know, I would say acute agitation needs to be medicated right now to throw out some other options. You know, we'll, we'll do some Ativan, a couple of milligrams of that. Maybe use some Haldol depending on um, what sort of exposure this person has had to antipsychotics in the past. Or, you know, depending on where you are, there's some other intramuscular antipsychotics that individuals w will use. I think the benefit to some of those treatments with antipsychotics is if someone's been, you know, say, diagnosed bipolar previously, and, and this is a second or third manic episode, you might have an idea of something they've responded to in the past, understanding that medication compliance or non-compliance for that matter is one of the main factors that, that's been associated with manic episode recurrence in, in someone who, who's had it before. 
but yeah, no, I agree. I think that's it's the same fork in the road that we often stand as we're taking a deep breath and about to enter a room of someone who's pretty agitated. If you have the benefit of good history and information on what they've responded to, then that might change some of your choices in, in, in medication selection. I think that's a, a great point. Now, I guess when you have the cooperative patient, and I guess once the acute agitation in the uncooperative agitated patient has been addressed, then I still always think that there's still the medical screening that has to happen first, followed then by our um, psychiatric workup. And I think kind of similarly to a patient with acute psychosis, there's basic lab work, CBC, BMP, and LFTs that we're obtaining. I think it's definitely smart to get an EKG, check to see is there any QRS widening, QT prolongation, evidence of sodium channel blockade, urine tox screen, I feel like it's going to be part of any one of these workups, see what kind of confounding indications could be on board, and then never forget to get a pregnancy test in our um, women of reproductive age. We know, you know, CT imaging of the head is useful if there's localizing uh, neurologic symptoms, we would do that anyway. Thyroid testing is always uh, possible if we're considering that on our differential or their risk for autoimmune disease. And then, you know, taking a good kind of medication history to see what meds are on yeah, board. Definitely. I think one of the red herrings that exists where our both of our practices intersect is, you know, that the idea of substance-induced mania, right? There, there's the traditional mood-based mania that we're talking about, but it is imperative to rule out any medications that have been started recently. In addition to some you know, particular drugs that are out there these days, methamphetamine, and um, my mind most uh, vividly, you know, can can create something that looks very much like mania, you know, a manic individual. In that regard, I think the only other thing I would throw into the differential is, is potentially like an agitated delirium. Like if you're seeing a, a patient on, on the floor who is sort of out of sorts and, and got a, a change in their consciousness, a pacing, and, and that sort of takes a little bit of digging into the history and, and the pattern because mania, even if you know we have a, an individual that's very agitated, safety risk, we medicate them, it's not going to go away the next day. It's not something we cure. It, it definitely ends up being a, a situation that opens the door to long-term treatment and usually individuals with bipolar disorder earn themselves, rightfully so in many cases, both these acute medications that we're talking about to help with the mania and then some long-term mood stabilizer, usually in combination with an antipsychotic. Can you see mania come out in uh, patients with in withdrawal states? Yeah, so there is not a lot of connection in, in the literature, but I would say based on my practice and working in a few different rehabilitation centers, we've had individuals coming off benzos in the past who had a, a manic reaction. And turns out the more you dig dug into that person's past, like they had distinct mood episodes prior, which is maybe just a little aside about how bipolar can be a little shifty. And many folks who present in a manic episode maybe have had many unrecognized episodes of hypomania, which is kind of like mania light. You know, it's not affecting your life in the same way and it lasts for less than four days. So understandably, maybe not something you run to your doctor to talk about. And many folks with bipolar disorder spend the majority of their life in depression. And so this mania aspect is something that will be, be a part of the picture and ultimately oftentimes can can suggest certain treatments there. Similarly, in that vein, just talking about some of the things that can trigger this, you mentioned amphetamines. What about psychedelic 
drugs? Would you see mania come about with drugs like LSD or psilocybin or ecstasy, other like other than, you know, stimulant seems like a natural thing that could kick this off, but what about other drugs? Yeah, so one of the, the first drugs, um, if we're talking more illicit substances that comes to mind, um, especially practicing here in Colorado, is marijuana. There seems to be individuals who, when they smoke weed, it elevates them and can lead to manic episodes or just prolonged manic feelings that tend to get better when they stop smoking weed. But because of that relationship, it's kind of hard to convince someone who's feeling great that they need to stop smoking the thing that makes them feel great. Psychedelics don't have as much evidence around causing or not causing. I think as they become more mainstream in their practice, we'll probably have some more evidence there. But um, experientially, I've had individuals who have used psychedelics and less in the, the mania spectrum, but more in the psychotic spectrum, have had symptoms that persist long past what we would think those drugs are in their system. And then the other drug I would throw out there is more the drugs we use, which is antidepressant medication. Many times folks who didn't really know they were bipolar get started on the antidepressant in, in good faith and will have a switch into mania. If that person continues to have manic symptoms after stopping the medication and, and letting the med wash out from their sy system, they've been officially, you know, at that point, diagnosable with, with bipolar disorder, which I guess to maybe tie up a loose end there, any individual that has a manic episode earns the right to be called bipolar. So just one episode, you're diagnosed. Another thing that we often encounter just in the ER is just the decision to place patients on a mental health hold on an M1 here. And to me, I would, you know, we talked about this again in our last episode about the criteria for that being at harm to themselves others, and then imminently uh, or gravely disabled. And so to me, again, you know, the question of is it, are you suicidal, homicidal is like less important here. And it's more just the recognition that these patients are clearly at grave disability um, to when you're you know, talking about, you know, selling your home to create your new startup that, you know, you just came up with the idea yesterday or whatever. That seems like, you know, a person whose life is very much in jeopardy because of their you know, mental state. And so I feel like very clear, to me, it would make a lot of sense to place these patients on an M1 hold. Yeah, I think this is one situation, you know, depending on the details and depending on, you know, maybe this person's electronic medical record and you, you know, if you feel that there's, there's good reason to believe this is a legitimate manic episode, I think it's one of the reasons that we have grave disability as a, as a way to exercise this authority of, of evaluating and treating people who might not desire that, right? I think one of the things that comes to my mind when I look at mania is this notion of endosignagia, which is like not being able to recognize what's going on in your own brain and in your own existence. And it's, it's pretty characteristic of many mental illnesses, but folks who are manic, you know, the last thing that they will admit to you is that they are sick and something is going wrong. And that's, you know, it kind of flirts with that psychosis -y world where, you know, their reality is, is different from the reality we're all kind of living in. But, you know, many folks might not be suicidal, they might not be homicidal, but that train has left the station around their ability to care for themselves. And I'll be honest, there have been times earlier on in my career when I was doing more emergency work where we'd say, oh, this person looks kind of like hypomanic. Let's just like give them a little bit of Seroquel, get some sleep tonight, and we'll see if we can like get them set up with some close outpatient follow-up. And like three days later, they're back with police at their sides bringing them in because they're running down the street 
wreaking havoc. And so, I, I mean, I, I guess I share that to say it's, it's a situation that for me, at least personally, I'm a more like, I'd rather be safe than sorry. I, I try to support people's autonomy, but I, when I'm working with an individual like this, I share with them, like, you know, I'd rather you spend a couple days in the hospital we see where this goes, opposed to you go back to where this started and hope that something's going to miraculously change. Yeah, totally. Could you share, I guess, uh, I mean, a little bit about what does happen on the inpatient side? I think we've talked a lot about just the initial kind of recognition of what a patient in mania, you know, looks like. What we do in the ER um, as far as stabilizing someone who's agitated or not, and then what kind of initial workup do we get to kind of set the table um, going forward? And then, you know, ultimately they, they end up leaving and you know, hopefully getting placed in some, you know, inpatient psychiatric facility. What do you guys do when that happens? Yeah, we um, batten down the hatches, you know. Usually <laughs> if there is, you know, kind of handoff that, that someone is acutely manic and coming upstairs, that the the first aspect that we try to take is more of an environmental approach, right, which I'd recommend to anyone in, in the emergency room setting too. But, like, how do we make sure that the lights are as calm as possible? There's not three manic people running around at the same time. Just practically speaking, like, let's get this person a room that's, maybe a, a solo room if we can, and we we start to treat right away. And, and so individuals with a manic episode, you know, if they've been medicated in the emergency room or not, will usually get treatment with both an antipsychotic, which is um, usually best for some of the short-term agitation and the acute agitation that, that we see, um, and that, you know, can span. Usually folks will try probably lanzapine, risperidone for some of the atypicals, um, those have the advantage uh, in certain formulations of being orally disintegrating. So folks, if you know, are uh, prone to maybe spit out their meds or cheek them, you can give them these ODTs and they work pretty well. And you can get folks pretty calm with that combination of an antipsychotic and plus or minus a, a benzodiazepine or something to help them get through the night. Um, in those moments, if someone can consent to treatment and you know, we can talk about other options, we'll usually open the door to mood stabilizers like lithium, Depakote. Those are our main go-tos in the inpatient settings because, you know, for example, with Depakote, you can load someone with a couple grams if you need to. And lithium, as long as someone's kidneys are okay, is a pretty safe choice that's got some of the best evidence for both depression and mania. So yeah, the first few days are, are kind of you know, tucking people in, trying to get them as much rest and, and calm and peace as possible, and then setting them up for the long-term treatment of bipolar disorder, which again, usually involves at least a mood stabilizer, and then in some people, a mood stabilizer and antipsychotic. The long-term treatment options are, are vast. You know, most people respond really well to psychotherapy, and then group therapy and family therapy is, is usually important for individuals, understanding that bipolar disorder uh, usually peaks in the early 20s. So you're looking at people who are like in a very interesting stage of their life, just getting out of high school, starting college, maybe starting a new job, starting families. And then they get this diagnosis of a chronic mental illness that is pretty serious. It's about as serious as they come. And so we try to work with families to set them up with organizations like NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. They've got some good psychoeducational groups. And then long-term, making sure that someone has an outpatient psychiatrist they trust. And then it's just really a, a game of trying to prevent the next episode. Ultimately speaking, you know, about 90% of people who have a manic episode will have another one in their lives. And with each manic episode, you know, there's neurodegenerative changes, people are at risk for dementia, and their return to baseline functioning is usually compromised.
I see. And the medications that they're commonly on outpatient, are they those mood stabilizers that you just mentioned, the lithium, the Depakote, or are they on antidepressants and antipsychotics as well? Yeah. So I think the the other mood stabilizers that, that might get started in the outpatient setting could include things like Lamictal. And then we also have seen with some of our atypical antipsychotics that they serve as a mood stabilizer in monotherapy. So if we look at Zyprexa, Seroquel, Abilify, all of those have really good evidence long-term, as long as you you know are able to manage some of the metabolic side effects that, that could accompany. Um, I think a few of the difficulties around conundrum is, okay, we're talking about acute mania treatment, getting someone stable and back to their baseline. And the vast majority of individuals after a manic episode go into depression, right? And that's 60% or so. And so, you know, you wonder, as you kind of said, what other things can we do? Antidepressants are not particularly first line, given the potential to switch someone back into mania, but we do it if individuals have depression that, that warrants it. The first line, though, is usually an atypical antipsychotic. So a few of them are approved for treatment of depression in a bipolar individual. And those are like Seroquel. You can also have Latuda, which is lorazodone. Olanzapine and fluoxetine have been added together into a pill to get approved and be sold all over the world. And yeah, I think the, the big dilemma is, is that, you know, we treat the mania and then we're stuck with an individual who is both at huge risk for depression throughout the rest of their life and there's not great treatments for it. And, and so we, we try to supplement that with diet and exercise and lifestyle modification. And most people are able to maintain a fairly decent balance between their baseline mood avoiding mania. And if they start to get hypomanic, usually aggressively treating that with increasing antipsychotics or benzos. I think I have heard at some point that there are some theories that some of these mental illnesses may start with sleep disruption. And it's interesting how they often are accompanied by sleep disturbances. And so just mentioned how, you know, diet and exercise are going to be key into this. I really wonder how important the the role is of regularity with sleep and sleep quality and, and things like that. And it just seems like such a natural connection between our, our mechanism for brain recovery and for preventing these manic episodes. Do you know if there's any, it seems intuitive, but I just don't know if there's like any like actual like data on it. Wholeheartedly support that that notion. Um, Data-wise, I, I don't have any facts on the top of my head, but I would say some of the earliest warning signs that someone is on the up towards this up and up of mania is kind of fractured sleep, going to bed a little later, waking up a little earlier, and almost, you know, in, in interviews with them and, and talking to folks, just, you know, having a noticeable change around even their desire for sleep. Mm. It's like, oh yeah, go to sleep, but like, you have someone who's kind of got insomnia at baseline and then you talk to them and it's like, oh yeah, it's not an issue anymore. Well, how much are you sleeping? Oh, like five hours. Hmm. And, and so, you know, suspicions raise. I think that the practice that I've um, developed is to treat that aggressively. Like if, if your sleep's starting to get out of whack, we're definitely not going to go down on your meds or see each other less frequently. Like this sure. is something we need to watch. And I also have recommended to many folks, you know, they're, they're just certain occupations, certain aspects of their dream job where they're like, oh, I want to go and like be a DJ in a club all night. And I'm like, hey, you know, you're playing with fire. Like you, you can, I mean, but there are many cases in my head that, that support what, what you're, you're saying. They're like this sleep is, uh, it's the bedrock, right? Like it's the cornerstone.
That is uh, super insightful. Well, Andrew, I think we've talked about um, a lot of aspects of this. And I got to say, I think that this was super um, helpful for me. And hopefully our listeners also took something from this. I talked about the initial recognition of mania, um, how to try to conduct an interview with someone who um, is in a manic state, the uh initial discrepancy or delineation rather um, between an agitated and cooperative patient, um, some of the initial labs that we get and workup that we start, followed by what happens on the inpatient side and some of the things that we can look for that might cue in, like that, that might clue us into a patient that's at risk for uh, having another manic outburst. Dr. Andrew White, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, no. I think that sums it up and, you know, I think if you treat them like people, you'll at least hopefully not get punched. That's like that's the goal, right? Like, that's all I got. That's the yeah. best advice. Yeah, I I appreciate that advice wholeheartedly. Well, Dr. Andrew White, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Anytime. <laughs>